I understand fall officially arrives this afternoon and couldn't come on a more beautiful day, could it? Someone has said that when it comes to the subject of generosity, there are really only two kinds of people, either givers or takers. The implication here is that generally speaking, we respond to circumstances around us either one way or the other. We either search out ways to take or we view circumstances in terms of what we can give. By and large, we fall into one category or the other, but we experience both. When I was growing up, like most kids, I was mesmerized by the adventure of Christmas time and birthdays, imagining what great discovery I might come up with as I ripped open all those wrappings. The thrill of anticipation, the exuberance of something new to impress me was stimulating and exciting. At that point in my life, honestly, giving was not so much in my mind, but basically receiving. But time and circumstances sometimes change us. Sometimes God changes us, and now I'm much more excited about giving something else to others and seeing a smile on their face. Scripture is full of examples of both attitudes of generosity. Cain was a farmer and gave some of his produce to God, but not the best that he had. On the other hand, his brother Abel was a herdsman, and the scripture says that Abel gave from the fat portion of his flock or the best of his flock, and God looked with favor on Abel's offering, but on Cain's offering he looked with disdain. Eventually, Cain's jealousy led to taking his own brother's life, and when taking controls us, sometimes it changes who we are on the inside. Paul tells the Philippian church He will send Timothy to encourage them and says in chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interest, not those of Christ. I want to say to Paul, really, Paul? Did you not have anyone else who qualified as a genuine giver rather than a taker? Are such people really that hard to find? Maybe some of us here today have an answer to that question. How many people in your world systematically give more than they take? While we may have to learn the art of being a habitual giver, we really don't need to learn much about taking. We know about that quite well. The message of biblical generosity, though, is that as to how we view what we receive as opposed to that which we give. Where does the pendulum swing for you or for me today? How would those who know me or know you best describe us to someone else, basically as a giver or a taker? Our passage today, if you want to follow along with me in Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 32 into the first nine verses of chapter 5, we're going to look at an episode in the life of the infant New Testament church. We've missed a beautiful characterization of who and what the church was designed to be by not being a part of that early church. In verses 32 through 35 of chapter 4, it appears to be an all-for-one, one-for-all spirit among those people. It embraced that entire house church, each one being cared for by the person next to him, each one sharing resources freely and liberally with his neighbor. No one person living on an island. Unbelievable compassion, mutual respect, common goals the way God envisioned his church to happen on earth. Verse 34 tells us that occasionally one or more of the house 
church members would sell his or her property, giving it all to the common treasury for the benefit of those who needed it most, bringing it back to the, the apostles to distribute that money as they deemed fit. That's, that was the plan, and everyone agreed to the plan. The contrast of how one might approach that challenge for the common good, however, comes in verse and last verses of chapter 4. It seems that Joseph, also called Barnabas, whose name we know, the son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought all of the proceeds back to the apostles. All of the proceeds. No reserve put back, no misrepresentation of funds, just faithful giving. But in contrast, a husband and wife, who evidently were also a part of that church, Ananias and Sapphira, also sold some real estate and also made an offering to the apostles, but only part of of the proceeds, the rest having been tucked away for their own use. And this may seem a little harsh to us, but Simon Peter held them accountable for their embezzlement, exposed their hypocrisy, and basically read them their death warrant. Seems harsh judgment for just keeping part of your own profits, you might say. We can't second-guess the balance between God's mercy and His judgment. He does not always choose to, to make us pay the ultimate price for disobedience or selfishness, but He reserves the right to render His judgment however He deems fit. Here's the situation as it seems to me. A new church established by the apostles commonly agreed to pool all of their resources and profits, at least at that point in time. It was expected of each person and each family. If one broke that covenant, it could be dangerously influential to others, provide an escape clause. At that point in history, with a fragile, vulnerable church, they needed the contribution of every single person. There was no room for unfaithfulness among them. Barnabas became the giver. Ananias and Sapphira chose to be takers. So there's an irony in giving and taking. Strangely how these two things affect us, we experience both. Is it possible to be a cheerful giver or is it possible to be a gracious receiver? How does one affect the other? How do we become more Christ-like either in giving or receiving? There's an irony there that amuses me. What changes one from being the impatient, self-seeking recipient to the person who just gives as a way of life? Does one contradict or complement the other? Give and take is a two-sided coin. What we do with our resources is more important than the resources themselves. And it's not just about money that we speak of here today. It's about whether or not we see life from a giving or a taking point of view. Consider yourself richly blessed when your investments prosper, when others extol your praises, when life smiles down upon you. Maybe you were just in the right place at the right time. Maybe you were visionary or resourceful. We've all been on the receiving end of generosity in some form or another. It then becomes a matter of our response. Will we hoard it? Will we hide it? Will we take it for granted? Or will we share it with others in generous ways? If we think we never have enough, then most likely we never will have enough. We can build bigger barns to store our goods, as evidenced in the Luke chapter 12 story, or we can find ways to give it away. Two Long Island migrant farm workers benefited from the kind generosity of their farm supervisor, and they secretly got together and decided to honor him with 
a small token of their appreciation. They pooled all of their resources, available resources and extra cash together, a sum total of $7, and took him to get a burger. Interestingly enough, they had just had their wages cut in half the week before. You see, their generosity flowed from a generous heart, but it had nothing to do with their ability to give or the amount that was given. What makes us a cheerful giver? What determines whether or not we are thought of as habitual givers or as chronic takers? Perhaps some things that we can share together this morning to, to examine this. Number one, do we tend to share, spend, or store what comes our way? There's nothing wrong with saving for a rainy day or providing for a secure future for yourself or your family. That's just good planning. But there comes a time when we might store or spend that which should have prospered others. Biblical generosity teaches us to be resourceful, not to be stingy. Remembering the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, we see Jesus' description of one who lived for his own gain, who routinely chose to store rather than share. We're either example of one attitude or the other. Neither is there anything inherently wrong about spending if it's done sensibly. We have no right to condemn or criticize the spending habits or resources of our neighbor if he spends his resources on worthwhile things. That's a responsible stewardship and managing our resources, and that's between us individually and God. But we each weigh our choices between spending or storing for ourselves on one hand and sharing and investing in causes outside ourselves on the other hand. We can either appear to be selfish or selfless in the way we carry out those choices. When resources are stockpiled yet never shared, we seem to live only to ourselves. It makes us too inwardly focused and outwardly insensitive. Who would have ever thought that $7 hamburger could resemble generous giving? The downfall of the rich fool was not that he was prosperous or wealthy. His downfall was that his resources benefited only himself instead of being spent on others. There are countless wealthy persons today who give away large sums, percentages of their income that they receive or inherit because building bigger barns is not their objective. Taking care of others is. Ananias and Sapphira could have followed the lead of Barnabas, who gave all that he was prospered. But instead, they held something back. And because they did, God chose to make an example of their unfaithfulness. When each of us decides to look beyond ourselves to the needs around us, it creates a culture of generosity, which has unbelievable potential and can make incredible impact on us and others. Let this story of free-flowing generosity bring it home to us. Justin Borger was friend to a homeless woman named Tammy who lived under a bridge in downtown Chattanooga, Tennessee. Tammy had been sexually exploited, so Borger and his wife picked her up, transported her to the hospital for treatment. A short time later, Tammy showed up at Borger's church where she was supplied with food vouchers and personal items. That hospitality created a dilemma for Borger and his church. You see, Tammy didn't keep all of what was given to her. She gave it away to other people in need. Living in poverty had so sensitized her to the needs of others, she had to share with them what she possessed, but they did not. 
It was unthinkable for her to receive that kind of unbelievable generosity and keep it to herself. She asked her friend Borger, why can't I give some too? Borger was disturbed by her question, why shouldn't she be allowed to give back some of what she had been freely received? And finally became apparent to him and to his church what had already been apparent to Tammy, that receiving that kind of grace without ever giving anything in return was humiliating. Borger said his theology of generosity changed at that point, and it grew much deeper. He had unknowingly created a one-way stream of generosity toward, camp, toward Tammy and countless others without giving any thought in return to how they might give themselves. Isn't that the way God intended? As recipients of his grace, we then become agents of generosity ourselves. Sharing gives us a satisfaction that self-centered spending and storing never will. So my question for you and for me today is what has God blessed us with? How has he been generous to you or me? I'm not talking here just about financial resources, although that's certainly part of the equation. What about the talents, the time, the skills, the relationships that God has given you? What we do know is that Barnabas had no regrets for his commitment, had proven Well, Ananias and Sapphira lost not only the fellowship of their church, they lost their lives as well. Like Tammy in our story today, have you been the recipient of God's abundant riches in your life so that you must simply share those with others? Or are you storing those or spending them on yourself? Second thing that we might consider is do we respond more out of commitment or out of comfort? This early church in our passage today faced an arduous task. The only way they could survive in a hostile culture was to demand total commitment from their members. Thus, they made a covenant to bring all the proceeds, real estate gain, back to the church treasury, trusting the apostles to distribute it as needed. We don't know how long that struggling church in this context held that high standard for its members We just know that it was in effect at that time, and it took great character and self-control to sustain it. The temptation must have been to let comfort rule one's decision instead. Here's a teaching moment for all of us today. God already owns all that we have. We did nothing to deserve the resources he's given. They're bestowed out of his grace and mercy, but with the expectation that we return everything back over to him as Lord of our lives. So when unswerving commitment compels that we grant him rightful ownership of all that we have, we're simply giving back to him what he's already given to us. Yet sometimes our desire for comfort supersedes our desire to please God, and we hold back for ourselves symbolically, physically, and emotionally. How much is your commitment or mine worth today? Who's depending on you or me today to stay the course? Have you and I realized that God, the ultimate giver, graced us with resources beyond our imagination, but not for the purpose of just enhancing our comfort, but rather of deepening our commitment? What evidence is there today that your commitment and mine have been rewarded in the plan and purpose of God? Or are we simply basking in the delight of our own comfort? Thirdly, do we contribute to the symphony, or are we just content to remain a soloist? 
I enjoy hearing a feature soloist as much as anyone. It demonstrates an unusual gift through music. It makes me mindful of the intense practice, the unusual skill set needed to perform at a high level. But when I hear a symphony or an orchestra like ours, where each person contributes in perfect harmony and synchronized effort to create a collective masterpiece for others to hear, it is unmatched in scope and effect for me. How each instrument shares in the total sound and presentation of that music is astounding. Solos require great talent, but symphonies require require great teamwork. In the fall months, any of us might see geese flying south for the winter. They can also be observed flying in V formation. And here's what science has learned about the significance of that flight pattern. As each bird flaps its wings, it creates an uplift for the bird immediately behind it. By flying in the V formation, the whole flock adds at least 71% greater range than if they flew on their own. It also allows the flock to keep up with every bird in their group. Now what geese have learned about their journey, the New Testament church is determined to imitate as well. When everyone falls into formation or symphony with one another, it creates a much stronger uplift and body to withstand the winds of adversity. This lesson helps us understand then why the faithfulness of Barnabas to play with the symphony in that young church and the mission of that church should not go unrewarded. He gave all that he had to bring. Our dilemma today is whether through the demonstration of our own generosity and faithfulness to God's church, we are working in formation and harmony and symphony with one another, or whether we've taken the solo stage on our own. Every church needs the input, the resources, the faithfulness of its members, for the journey is long and tedious. But as great symphonies and flocks of geese remind us, working together is worth the effort, and it's really the better way. We can do so more, much more together than we could ever do and achieve alone. Paul tells the church at Ephesus, from him, Jesus, the whole body is joined together and by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So what are you and I contributing today to the formation or to the symphony at work in this body of Christ known as First Baptist Norman? Where do you and I fall into line to offer our generosity toward the common goal and the greater good? We can choose to fly solo if we want and achieve some level of success on our own, or we can make the better choice to fly in perfect formation and in symphony with each other. The choice is ours. The world around us awaits our answer because there's much left to be done. Lastly, do we understand the difference between equal gifts and equal sacrifice? I'm relatively sure that the early New Testament church recorded in Acts chapter 4 resembles in one important way our church today. As there were different levels of need, there were corresponding different levels of blessing and prosperity among that early church. Each person or family managed their own financial gain or lack thereof, but some had more some had less. There was no hierarchy established. There was no pecking order of those who rose to the top, looking down on those who did not have as much. Jesus commended a widow for all she had to give, not for the dollar value of her gift, but for the sacrificial value of her gift. Not equal gifts, but equal sacrifice.
It's not what rattles or piles up in the offering plate or impresses the bank teller, but rather what that gift does for you or for me and our relationship to God and for his church. We've heard it said before that perhaps it needs to be restated today. God does not really need our money. He already owns everything, but he does need our faithfulness. Equal sacrifice, not equal gifts. In a Portland, Oregon mag- magazine, a Catholic priest tells this story about an old street person named Ben. One Christmas Eve, the parish decided to offer a meal to their homeless population to li- who lived nearby. Does that t- sound familiar to us? By 9 o'clock, they were down to the last pot of soup. Yet the crowd was still wrapped around the block waiting to come in the, the church house. By 9.30, they were down to the last bowl of soup. And here came disheveled, tired, and hungry Ben, who always seemed to wear a smile on his face, regardless of the circumstances around him. As he appeared to have taken the last bowl of soup and walked over to the table, a tiny, frail teenage boy came through the door who no one had seen before. The perilously thin young man looked like he must have slept in the cold and mud, was shivering over his entire body, and encountered a large bruise over one eye. He looked at the, to- at the soup kettle and noticed that the- it was empty by now, and as his eyes grew large and he struggled to hold back the tears, volunteers in the kitchen began secretly taking up their loose change in order to go out and find him something to eat. At that point in time, old Ben walked over to the young man. He placed his hand on the boy's cheek and caressed it, as a father might do. He grinned and faded off into the dark night, as he handed him that last hot bowl of soup that he had. The priest described that moment with these words. That event that night made me realize for the first time why God wanted to be human. And reflecting on this story in my own mind, I sense that sometimes we are the host of onlookers. You and I, we're watching carefully to see what God is doing in our midst, and we may have brought food, we may have prepared food, we may be agents of grace, but we're not really playing the leading part in that drama at the moment. We're giving, we're serving, we're standing by, we're watching to see what happens, but we're in the supporting cast. Other times, we represent the young lad ourselves. In our innocence and despair, we place ourselves totally vulnerable before God, taking whatever we might be able to get from him, hoping it will restore, rebuild, or improve our way of life. But sometimes even, we perhaps are in the person of old Ben, as we represent the hands and voice and feet of Christ to to reach someone else through our generosity, even giving up our last bowl of hot soup for someone else who's even hungrier than we are. What flashes through your mind today as you think about the habits of giving and taking in your life? Are you comfortable with how others might describe your generosity or lack thereof? Do you spend or store far more than you share? Is there a need to reevaluate and let God prayerfully guide your thought process? Or perhaps you are already a characteristically generous person and you demonstrate that in countless ways to your family, your church, and community. If so, thank you for being faithful and seeing the world as being a lot bigger than you are and in need of your generosity. 
When you respond to the needs around you is the last thing that comes to your mind, that's a commitment I just must make, or that's a comfort I cannot give up. When we look toward our common interests and our mission as a church, we are still preferring to go solo or we're playing in the symphony. Do you understand and appreciate the value of equal sacrifice, where each one does what he or she can to accomplish God's plan for our church? Are you well aware that some among us will be blessed to give more than you do, others less, and that each amount is important because it comes from a grateful heart if we're doing all we can? One last illustration perhaps will bring this home. In the 2011, Arizona Diamondbacks were playing Milwaukee, and young Ian and his father were attending the, ba- the baseball game. <clears throat> A foul ball came up into the stands, and if you've ever been to a, a major league game, it's, it's the heartthrob of every, of every young man, some, and even adults, that they bring their, their mitts with them to the, to the stadium in, in hopes that they might somehow catch a foul ball. Well, that day a foul ball bounced right in front of Ian, and it did not bounce toward him, but it bounced near him, and so the attendant next to him caught the ball and realized that Ian would have loved to have had that foul ball, so he handed it to him. Well, somehow the camera caught that, and Ian noticed there was a younger, little younger boy sitting down closer to the, in, in the stands near him that looked like he was totally devastated. So Ian took that, that souvenir foul ball, which he had never received before in his life at a baseball game, took it a few rows down and presented it to another little boy. And because it had been seen by the stadium announcer uh, and his partner, they, they really made a big deal about it. And they even presented Ian with some free tickets to a future game. And, and they said over the loudspeaker system, what a, what a kind, brave thing that young man has done. And I really think that illustrates today what we're talking about with generosity. Ian didn't catch that foul ball. Someone else did but it was given to him, and it was given to him, and as much as he wanted that foul ball, he realized there was another little boy down, a few rows down, that needed it and wanted it even more than he did. So he graciously gave away what he had just received. I, and I pose that question for us today, and in, in our giving and our taking, I want to be thought of at some point in my life, and hopefully at the end of my life, as someone who was more of a giver than a taker. I think all of us do. As to how we handle that in terms of our, our own stewardship, our own generosity, that's a matter for each of us to work out with God. As it relates to our church today, are we working in symphony with one another to bring about the, the best chance for good, uh, to bring the cause of Christ to be around the world? Each of us wrestles with a tension between giving and taking. Just ask an old man named Ben, but then again, he figured it out one Christmas night. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for all the multiple gifts, the generosity that you bestowed upon us all of our lives in in different ways and different forms. Today, we understand that that is only part of who we are, but we must also accept the fact that being given to should make us want to give ourselves. 
Help us with our spirit of generosity as we think about what we possess, all that we possess, not just our financial resources, but all that we are, all that that makes us who we are as an individual, and to share that, our passions, our gifts, our talents with others. Father, we know it's it's a big world and that there are desperate needs. We know that sometimes the few coins that the widow gave may not seem like much, but if we all share those together, we can do so much more. Thank you, Father, for an opportunity today to reflect on giving and taking. We turn it over to you and your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.